Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Joining us today are Tim Heath and Barry Pavel of the RAND Corporation to discuss the federally funded Research uh, and Development Center's thought-provoking new report, U.S.-China Rivalry in a Neo-Medieval World, Security in an Age of Weakening States. Uh, Tim is one of the authors of the report, along with Wei Long Kong uh, and uh, Alexis uh, Dale Huang. Barry leads, of course, the defense program at RAND. Uh, gentlemen, thanks so very much uh, for joining us. It's a great to have you both back on. And Barry, it was terrific seeing you last week uh, at that great PPBE reform event you guys uh, held at your um, Arlington office. So, gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Great, great to be here. Great. Thanks. And a quick word that our coverage of strategy, strategic issues, and conversations with leading thinkers is sponsored by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems and devoted to the memory of one of the nation's greatest national security strategists, the late, great Andy Marshall, the former director of the Pentagon's Office of Net Assessment. This strategy series is not affiliated with the Andrew W. Marshall Foundation. Uh, Tim, fascinating uh, report, uh, and the point you and your team make is uh, that what we're seeing in the U.S.-China dynamic is unlike anything we've seen over the past couple of centuries. Uh, you guys label it neo-medievalism, uh, and, uh, the, and the conditions of which uh, you guys argue already exist. And it's interesting that the former Polish president, Lech Wałęsa, uh, last week at CSIS, uh, said that we were living uh, between epochs, between eras, citing shifting domestic politics, technology, and other trends, climate, and otherwise. You guys are taking and making sort of a similar case. Now, the next couple of questions are going to come right from uh, your guys' uh, report, right, in terms of what you guys were trying to answer. But I promise I'm going to get more original <laughs> as we go on. Explain to the audience, Tim, what the medieval world looked like for those who haven't thought about it for uh, a little while. And what does actually neo-medievalism look like? Really, almost all human civilizations outside of the post, or as you were, outside of the industrial era from 1800 to 2000 shared several features in common. And I'm talking about societies that, that could be in Africa, in Asia, in Latin America, pre-modern, pre-industrial Europe. Uh, what they had in common were, first off, states that were relatively weak states that did not have the bureaucratic penetration and reach of modern industrial states. Their societies tended to be relatively fragmented with high levels of inequality and populations that were uh, you know, uh, somewhat very village and uh, locally oriented and lacking a sense of national unity. Um, economically, th these countries grew at a very slow rate usually on average well below 1% per year GDP-wise um, for virtually any pre-industrial society. And the threats they faced were uh, multi-vectored. Uh, a lot of the most profound and, and dangerous threats were domestic or, or non-military. It could come from disease, pandemics, uh, banditry, uprisings by uh, discontented peasants or, or common folk who are hungry, um, challenges to the rule of the king or, or the, you know, the supreme ruler of this whatever political entity it might be. Um, it's very common, fighting between elites. Right. And then the way these militaries were organized, they, they relied heavily on mercenaries, uh, did a lot of fighting with domestic opponents, and uh, relied heavily on sieges and assassination.
So what does a neo-medieval current world look like, right? Because some of these conditions exist, but not all of these conditions are, are the same. Correct. Or, or, so or are they? Actually, if you look around the world outside of the U.S., Europe, Japan, the most advanced industrial societies, you actually find quite a bit of continuity between what's going on in the developing world and a lot of the pre-industrial uh, societies. Um, but even in the richest countries, including the U.S. and Europe, we are seeing trends in, in the same direction uh, intensifying over time. So one way to understand it is that uh, for years, people have been talking about transition from industrial to post-industrial. And there's been all kinds of terms and ideas floated out. But what we posit that I think is novel is the idea that there's not just change, but regression happening, uh, where even the most wealthiest and industrialized nations are regressing back to norm more commonly seen in the developing world and pre-industrial societies. But Barry, I want to uh, bring you to this, right? You're uh, a, uh, a strategist. What do these conditions mean when the United States is trying to better compete with China and in the defense work that it's trying to do to, um, you know, counter, stand up, organize against China, uh, which has been really a central focus of this administration? Thanks. I, I actually think it there's a corollary of, of uh, I think, you know, there's so much of what Tim is talking about that that rings very true to me, but I think it causes, a, it's there's kind of a corollary. I mean, to me, the steady state, um, you know, peacetime slash competition um, and even heading into crisis means exactly what Timothy said and his colleagues. Uh, the superpowers are, <clears throat> are strong, but they're, they're very weak harder for them to mobilize their societies, harder to effectively compete um, and to do, you know, to, 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 to really make it clear uh, what the U.S. stands for and what the U.S. does not stand for. I mean, you can pick any example over the last five, 10 years, and we're seeing this, you know, in spades ever since Obama did not hit the 50 targets in Syria uh, uh, in his administration, which is, I think, was sort of the when the door kind of opened um, uh, the fa uh, the famous red line, right? We're saying a, re yeah. a red line for chemical weapons use, and and yes. then not doing it, even though the administration's case was, you know, by gathering up all of those WMD at the end of the day, we we you know it was better we not strike, and and do the Russian broken brokered deal. But I but a lot of people have looked at that at that as that sort of bright moment uh, where where the system started failing. Yeah, and so I think my point is so. Um, you know, as Bob Gates said recently, former Secretary of Defense, you know, is anyone afraid of the United States anymore because we're taking this kind of, I'll use the term lawyerly, incremental, careful. And, you know, Xi Jinping and Putin, when they spoke after the state dinner last March in an off uh, mic moment, uh, open mic moments, she turned to Putin and said, if we work closely together, we have an opportunity to shape the next hundred years of global history. We are not thinking that way. We are right. thinking of avoiding this and avoiding that and not doing this and not doing that. So, my, But I guess my point is superpowers are weaker until they're not. In other words, if the, US, if the U.S. were attacked, if there was a major attack on a U.S. ally, the American people could be roused, just like after 9-11, just like the Iraq war uh, way back, not the second one, but the first. Right. China, too. If Taiwan is going very badly for them, 
although Timothy's more the expert here, is it possible they'll keep going? I mean, do we think they'll give up quickly or easily? Can they be roused? Um, and so a key question is that Timothy's report raises, which is the really important one, is can can either superpower mobilize their societies for war and, and can allies be mobilized alongside that? But so I think that, you know, tentative nature of steady state engagement makes war more likely. But I think, you know, emotion plays a role. Right. Uh, look at Putin's invasion, which was irrational. Um, and I think the American people, when they're roused, they can you know, really be supportive of a, of a war. Now, this is going to be a different kind of war, as the report points out. So that's my main point right. is could it could go the other way if, if a threshold right. is passed. Um, I, I would uh, point out also right after 9-11, where you did some uh, really incredible work uh, with your colleagues on what you know a strategy looks like, a counter-terrorist, counter-deterrence uh, of terrorism uh, strategy looks like. Right, right before 9-11 happened, you know, there was a lot of, you know, the nation is divided and it's about bread and circuses and, you know, impeaching Bill Clinton uh, and and all of his dalliances as, a, as opposed to becoming serious about it. And you saw a pretty abrupt shift. I mean, literally in a week. Uh, where where folks were talking about you know we're, we're you know we're we're weak and we can't really come together and and we we did as a nation Tim let me uh, go go to you uh, and get your sense on um, what right I mean you are a China expert what are the condition what do these conditions mean for a potential conflict between China and the United States. Well, I think Barry's right. If a conflict breaks out, it's going to be very different than what we saw in the past two centuries. Um, what we're seeing in the world today is that it is almost impossible for any society to mobilize its citizens. Even when they're invaded, Ukraine cannot uh, carry out a general mobilization and conscript all its people, or at least they, they've hesitated because the political and economic costs are so high. Even Russia, uh, which claims to be fighting all of NATO, they are afraid and unwilling to carry out a general mobilization of their people. They have to rely on prisoners and convicts to do their fighting. Right. Um, so I think in China, if if a uh, serious crisis broke out, um, they will they're going to rely heavily on their standing army, which is their professional troops. All these countries seem to rely on the and the U.S. did when it fought its wars. The professional troops do the bulk of the fighting with little involvement by the rest of the population. Um, right. There will be a heavy emphasis on indirect methods of fighting. Uh, I think autonomous weapons are going to be extremely appealing to the Chinese. Um, they got, they're in proximity with missiles that can just bomb Taiwan. Uh, so they'll rely heavily on missiles and autonomous weapons. And um, I think if the U.S. starts to get involved in that conflict, they will... Um, they will aim to uh, uh, target some of our serious political vulnerabilities. And, and right. the Chinese, of course, have their own serious political vulnerabilities. So I think the political dimension will be an important part of any fight. Let me uh, pull on that uh, again. Um, Hal uh, Brands and Mike Beckley have long made the argument that the Chinese get more dangerous the weaker they get. And we have been seeing steadle, steady weakening uh, of the economic uh, state, the Chinese economic state that is at the heart of the Chinese Communist Party's power, right? The compact, whether Putin with the Russian people or Xi and the Chinese people is, look, you're going to give up your rights, but you're going to have a good economic life and we'll see to it that you're on an ever upward trajectory of comfort, right? You can take vacations in Europe, uh, you'll have good jobs, you can buy consumer products, 
but you're, you know, we're not going to have you and allow you to demonstrate in the streets. And the Chinese have been the same. It's just that the Chinese economy has been shrinking. And in fact, the Russian economy is shrinking, right? China is more dependent on the rest of the world. Do the Chinese become more dangerous, Tim, as they go from Uh, economic distress to distress? Well, uh, yes and no. On the one hand, I think we have seen the Chinese adopt a more, um, uh, you know, belligerent tone and language, but they've actually behaved very cautiously. And I think this reflects their sensitivity to the fact that although national nationalist uh, posturing is popular, asking the people to actually sacrifice for the sake of the nation is very unpopular. Polls show that, uh, you know, unification with Taiwan remains a popular idea in, in China, but when asked if war is justified to achieve that, overwhelming majorities of the populations uh, oppose it. War is unpopular. Military service, extremely unpopular in China. The PLA has failed to recruit uh, adequate numbers of volunteers for for years and is increasingly resorting to harsher and harsher penalties for draft dodging for young people because they simply don't want to serve. So uh, I think the Chinese uh, can become more provocative, as they've done. But to date, they've actually been very cautious in actually starting any conflict. This is different than Russia, where Putin had a long record of aggression going back to 2008. And, um, you know, again, similarly, he hasn't really asked a lot of his people. He's not raised taxes in a significant way. It's not conscripted. He relies on professional troops to do provocative acts. Um, It's just that in his case, he's got much easier targets. People, countries right on this border. Taiwan's a much harder nut to crack for China, especially given the risk of war with the U.S. Um, uh, Barry, uh, let me go to you to a point that both of you have made at the top, which is about societal cohesion. The, the last week alone, if you were, I think, Chinese or Russian, uh, would have uh, filled you with at least some degree of comfort in the United States, right? Uh, a Congress that can't pass immigration reform, it can't pass aid to uh, Ukraine and ally and partner. I mean, all we are is providing them with the tools with which to fight Russia, right? I mean, that's about as easy a lift as you could want. Um, we have, uh, you know, Alejandro Mayorkas is being impeached for political reasons. You know, the amount of division is incredible in the, the United States at this point and the polarization. Um you know, b- both presidents this week were in legal trouble. One obviously in significantly worse one, but the sitting American president was said, hey, you didn't handle like classified information well. You're a well-meaning man, but you have a poor memory. How, how do all of these factors play into this? And can the United States actually live up to its role as the global power if it is so incredibly divided? And are you just giving a tremendous opportunity to your adversaries in this global contest to mis- mischaracterize you or miscalculate. Um, you're raising all the right issues. I consider this kind of, uh, you know, the domestic sources of American power and influence question. Um, it is, you know, not trending in the best direction, um, as you're pointing out. Um, I think it, uh, you know, this, and this is neo-medievalism. This is what Timothy and his colleagues right. are talking about the societal cohesion, basically. Um, And Rand has done additional work on this, a brilliant paper by uh, Mike Mazar on the sources of societal competitiveness. Uh, That also is really, really important for this set of questions, if you look at the two countries. I guess I come back to um, what I still think is true, 
Um, yes, democracies are messy. Uh, we are kind of, kind of in a new era where the domestic societies and democracies seem like they're unraveling a bit. Um, and I don't want to sound Pollyannish, but like would we change places with Xi Jinping right now? If we, you know, if we had this hypothetical, cho- I wouldn't want to do that. The, the, the unbelievable volume, it doesn't mean that we're perfect. Um, but I think, you know, inherent in democracy's messiness is resilience and ability to course correct. And I've been on the pointy end as a civil servant of new uh, political officials coming in. And those ideas refresh every four years. And those tend to be pretty good because the world keeps spinning and otherwise bureaucracies like uh, get comfortable. Right. But uh, this, you know, there could be a discontinuity in the next election that leads to a very, very different uh, foreign policy that could, you know, make some of these trends much you know, much, much worse if there's a wild swing in American, the nature of American uh, engagement uh, in the world. But I, when I look at the problems in front of Xi Jinping, uh, boy, that is a much more daunting set of challenges. And I, when I also look back at the 1960s in America, uh, that, you know, people say this time is complex. Uh, I would say that was a, a much more divisive and difficult time. We came out of it, no guarantee we would, you know, emerge stronger from this. But I do like this kind of historical perspective and the comparative one of uh, looking at our adversaries. And I think our societies, our polities are more resilient. Yes, you may. But if I may interject, I oh. mean, we are also now, though, Barry, I completely agree with you. And by the way, you're as much of a strategist as you are a diplomat with that deft uh, handling of that of that question. But we're also in a neo shameless era, right, which we were not uh, back then. Right. When confronted um with wrongdoing, Richard Nixon concluded it was it was better to step down, whereas we are in a different place right now where a president can actually foster an insurrection in order to stay in power, right? Which, which we're in a little bit of a different space, aren't we? Before we go to Tim. Yeah, that's why that's why I was saying, you know, I think one of the factors when I talk about the state of the world and the key, how to look at it, and I would like to talk about how strategy determines how right. we see the world. But when I give you know, offer my thoughts on strategy. I think one of the key factors I point to is this, you know, this kind of unraveling in our in democratic societies and how that also is um, leading to an uncertain nature of the U.S. role in the world. Those are intimately connected, as are the other factors that I point to. So, no, I'm not being Pollyannish. I think we need to do something different in order to bring cohesion back uh, to retain our identity and our security and prosperity as a nation. I'll, I'll do that in a minute. Tim, go ahead. I'm sorry I interrupted you. Yeah, no problem. I, I just want to underscore a point uh, Barry's making. Um, the same trends that are contributing to weakening of America's uh, society, fragmenting and weakening of our state are affecting all other countries, including China, Russia, Iran. And in fact, they're experiencing these trends to a much more acute degree. It's worth bearing in mind that for all our problems, America's economic outlook is much stronger than our competitors and uh, our institutions, although they have been weakened, are still stronger than what uh, China and Russia, Iran have. And I I think people overstate, really overstate China's appetite for war. If you closely read the speeches and documents coming out of Beijing, they are overwhelmingly uh, concerned and alarmed by their own domestic situation. So um, they have their own counterparts of the kind of issues we're grappling with. And in many ways, their problems, I agree with Barry, are, are just much more severe than even our own. 
Um, I, I find their system fascinating because it has pressure relief valves the Russian system doesn't have in it, right? There are ways of expression and means of expression that I think in general Russians don't have, which makes the China particularly interesting to watch. Let me go to the strategic, what do we do next with this question? And Barry, why don't you start us off, right? We're seeing taxing of institutions, you know, as, as Tim said, in, in Britain, uh, in France, there are tensions. In Germany, it's the rise of the right, right? I mean, we, we have this replicating in a lot of different places where there is greater instability. Uh, more focus sometimes on local politics for many people in the United States. It's about the books in the library, what's being taught in school as opposed to what's going on with Ukraine or China. Right. And and those issues are elevating in importance uh, to, to a degree. What is the strategic approach to this, Barry, that we need to be taking from a broader, broader standpoint? Well, I, I think it's a two part answer. Let me answer directly. And then and then the second piece directly is, you know, so I mean, I think we need farsighted leaders or at least kind of um, clear eyed leaders who reach across. And so what is the core source of the discontent on the other side? And so I'm not a don't consider myself a political expert, but why wasn't Biden going to the disadvantaged communities that have been that are that feel so alienated, uh, that feel so um, that are, you know, that are now, um, you know, in ill health that whose life expectancies are going down? Like, why wasn't that a major initiative over the last uh, over this administration? Like what? Is, how do we address the real grievances? You know, some legitimate and some, uh, you know, less so. But why isn't there a, like a real attempt to like deal with the real issues of some of the uh, elements of our society that really don't, you know, really haven't benefited from um, the last couple of administrations or the last several? The second thing I'd say, I think, is, you know, strategy determines how you see the world. It determines what you pay attention to, what you don't. You know, not everything can be important. And so it gives you the portfolio of how you think about what you're seeing. So neo-medievalism is a really interesting filter, uh, maybe on top of great power competition. I think there are more. And so I think we need to build a, a strategy for navigating the world that accounts for these different frameworks and priorities. One size does not fit all. So I'll give you an example. You know, we didn't call it World War II until three years in, 1942. Before that, there was a, a big regional conflict in Asia. There was a there was a major conflict in Europe. You know, we now have two hot wars in which the U.S. is not directly engaged in combat, but we're engaged. So will we look back on February 22, Putin's invasion as the beginning of World War Three? Do we know what's coming next? I just think we need to be constantly catching ourselves and avoiding strategic myopia. Uh, inter interesting indeed, although. Um, I'm going to come back to you in a minute because I don't understand how you can make people care who don't care, right? It's strategically self-evident the United States has to support Ukraine, and yet the man who's running for president doesn't want the border deals that Republicans have long sought because he doesn't want aid going to Ukraine. He is a fan of Vladimir Putin's, and he doesn't want to hand Biden a victory, right? I mean, there are players in this. Ideally, members should say, hey, I'm going to vote in the broader national interest. Jim Langford deserves a lot of credit for being the senator to say, hey, we came here to do stuff. That means dealing with the other side. How do you change this, Barry? How do you get people to do the right thing? You know, you're, you're absolutely right. It should have been self-evident for a president that's trying to unite the country to go and visit the places that are angry with Washington 
to show that Washington cares. John Kennedy did that. Lyndon Johnson did that. Richard Nixon did that. That's that's my recommendation. And so if if this president's not going to do it and the uh, you know, the and the other party's president, we need leaders like the one you mentioned in in the Congress. We need leaders to do this. We just need more leaders. So it's talking about this and it's engaging and listening. Uh, you know, we, we, it's very dangerous when Washington is perceived as completely um, disconnected from the majority of the American people's concerns. So this kind of approach of a foreign policy that's attentive to the middle and other classes. I think that's really important. But then you got to act on it. You can't just talk about it. You got to execute it and you got to be persistent and you have to be, you know, continually engaging to make sure there's that connection. Otherwise, there's dangers. And we're starting to starting. We're seeing these dangers really bubble up as you're talking about. Tim, your sort of strategic diagnoses, uh, both domestically, but also how the United States has got to bring its partners, right? I mean, because a greater number of fragmented powers is also problematic, right? You want this uh, China balancing coalition to be a group of strong nations that sort of see eye to eye. The administration is helping them bring together. What do the next steps of this strategy look like from, from your standpoint, when the well, United States maybe is bringing together fractured, feudal I mean, I don't want to put feudal in it. Anyway, you get the meaning. Fractured, yeah. So I I think that, you know, the reality is that there simply aren't the resources anymore to uh, incentivize large portions of the population to trust and and carry out acts of national sacrifice that was possible decades ago. You know, Russia, U.S., China, and all countries – you know, people are starting to recognize that there's just going to be a lot of people whose lives are going to be hard and the conduct of foreign policy and security policy will be managed primarily by, you know, for lack of a better word, a, an elite, a foreign policy elite and a professional military. So I think we have to profoundly think harder about um, how we carry out great power competition in a manner where much of the population simply isn't engaged. It's, it's just, you know, no matter how hard we try, there simply aren't the resources to give, to rebuild the large middle class like we had in the 60s. And this is true of all countries. So, um, and our insights will have to come from pre, I think, pre-industrial great power struggles or, or how other countries outside of U.S. and Europe in the 1800s, 1900s uh, contended with each other. Uh, there, in a lot of cases, there was a heavy emphasis on heavy reliance on contractors and uh, motivated allies and partners. Could be non-state actors who who help. Uh, political, uh, economic, informational warfare were very prominent in many cases. Large-scale conventional combat was less common, and much more common were uh, irregular warfare, sieges, and other kind of tactics. So. I think we're going to have to think harder about, uh, you know, new operational ideas, new tactics, uh, new technologies, and methods that will allow us to contend with our rivals and operate within within a very real political constraint that isn't going to change in a in a meaningful way, in my opinion, um, for the foreseeable future. Really quick uh, to the both of you because we've got about a minute before we go. But is this just an epic? Is most of this? by national leaders, a communication fail or 
as as Lech Wałęsa uh, said at CSIS, you need to be better at propaganda, getting your message out while also helping undermine your adversaries. They're doing this to you. You've got to turn the tables on them. How much of this is more clearly communicating in the United States? The president has been criticized, right? Not giving an address before the Super Bowl, not making a case to the American public, only speaking to them a handful of times. Uh, whereas his adversary, whether you like it or not, is always communicating, whether you mm -hmm. want to hear it or not, he's always communicating. And almost his messages are making it to a broader population almost by osmosis. Indeed, I would say there's even Chinese and Russian messaging that's getting to a vast portion of the American people almost by osmosis, whereas the other side actually doesn't appear to really be communicating and certainly not telling the global story. Anyway, on both of these metrics, Barry and Tim, how do we need to be thinking about this and how do we need to be executing it? Because I think we have some very good communicators involved, for example, in the administration. I'm just not sure it's strategically communicating either domestically or globally. Yeah, I mean, it comes across, I mean, there's two issues there, strategy and communications, which are the right ones. Uh, to me, it comes across as a series of wonky uh, policy initiatives. I don't see the strategy connections. Where? What are the goals? What's our goal in the great power competition regarding China? I haven't heard a goal. Uh, we're doing so a series of policy initiatives across key domains. I think they kind of feel good. Same with Russia, sanctions kind of kind of feels good. But whenever someone would propose a policy initiative to General Scowcroft, you know, arguably the greatest national security strategist in the United States history, he would say, so what's the strategy? Like, what are we trying to get out of this set of actions? Um, and so, you know, when when we have um, I'll go back to the Vilnius summit, unfortunately, where there was a Ukrainian uh, woman in the audience asking the U.S. National Security Advisor a question, a real question, an emotional question about her son having to serve, you know, in a war that's going to go on for years. And the answer was uh, uh, kind of um, feisty and wonky. That's not a way to win over allies or domestic <laughs> constituents. Uh, you got to really understand what's at stake here. And you and people are driven by emotion. Our adversaries are driven by emotion, our allies sometimes. <laughs> and so you, this this kind of um, nexus between strategy and communications is critically important. When the previous president publicly dissed the leaders of our allies, that affects the long term health of your alliance, because people in those allied countries are saying, what's going on in the U.S.? What like do we still share values? What? Why is the U.S. leader dissing, <laughs> dissing yeah. us and leveraging us and kind of like jamming us? That's not healthy. Tim, I think there is a definitely a messaging piece. That the reality is, um, I think the opinion of publics, even in our allied and partner countries, can no longer be taken for granted. People are being exposed to all kind of influences and ideas. Their their loyalties. Um, cannot be assumed. So I think messaging is more important than ever. Leadership style matters a great deal. And um, it's, it's going to take real, I think, diplomatic savvy and messaging uh, savviness to operate in this new space. Uh, and, and, you know, and in addition to all the other rethink about policies, strategies, tactics, and technology. So it, this is a much more diplomatic and information demanding uh, environment to operate. And uh, I agree with Barry, these, these should be top priorities for our leaders to develop. 
Guys, thanks very much for joining us. Great conversation uh, and something uh, worth uh, following up because um, we are at a fascinating place and I'm not sure folks are looking at it with the breadth that we need to be looking at it from a strategy perspective. Uh, we are at an inflection point. People talk a lot about it, but I think the broader work you guys are doing here about sort of broader global trends and what they potentially mean uh, is very thought provoking. Thanks very much again for joining us and look forward to having you guys back on again soon. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks very much, Vago. Very, very interesting and important conversation.